Well, it's good to be with you this morning as it is every week. Just grateful to be able to gather together. Uh, just one quick note. If you are hot, uh, it's not necessarily because the Spirit's convicting you this morning. It might be uh, just because it's a bajillion degrees in here. Um, this is an old building, and uh, there's no way to control how much heat is being pumped in. So maybe when it's 20 degrees outside, it'll feel good, but this morning it might be a little hot. So uh, feel free to fan yourself if you need to this morning. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully you can... Uh, Hang with us this morning. But man, it's good to be with you this morning uh, here at Sojourn. If this is your first time, we're grateful to be able to gather with you, to have you come gather with us this morning. And uh, we are in the middle of a series called Faithful Church. We've been over the last few weeks and have about three weeks left. We're just kind of talking about and looking through in the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus what it means for us to be a faithful church here in Fairfax in 2020. 15. And so we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. So if you need a Bible, if you just raise your hand, we'll have a few folks bring a Bible around to you. So just keep your hand up until they find you. We want you to be able to uh, read along with us out of 1 Timothy this morning. If you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures, please feel free to take that with you. That is a gift from us to you. We want you to have God's word in your hands. Man, we live in a pretty fast-paced World And within our fast-paced world, we live in a pretty fast-paced area. I think it's something in northern Virginia that we tend to pride ourselves on is how much we have to do, uh, how busy our schedules are. We like to drive fast. We like to live life fast. We eat fast food. Everything's about going, 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 and being faster. I mean, going is really what we do. We're always on the go. And with that, we tend to be, and I think, again, this is uh, probably pretty pervasive within our world, but especially here in the D.C. metro area, we, we pride ourselves on being action-oriented types of people. We like to get things done here in this area. And then oftentimes that bleeds into the church. It bleeds into the culture of the church as well. And Overall, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It might be a bad thing. It might be good in some ways. In fact, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We are called to be a going people. We're called to be on the go as God's people. That's why this church exists. We exist to glorify God by making disciples, followers of Christ who've been saved from their sin and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another to become more and more like Jesus. And that necessitates going. It necessitates being on the move to make disciples both locally and globally. And so as we talk about being a faithful church, being on mission, what we call being on mission, taking the gospel to those who have not yet believed or have not yet heard is of paramount importance to us if we're going to be faithful. But before we charge ahead and take Jesus' words and say, go, we're going to run out the doors and go share Christ with people. We should want to do that. But before we get there, what we need to do is we need to get on our knees. We need to stop and ask that the Lord would do what only he can do. Save people from every tribe, every language, every nation, both locally and globally. Or more simply put, our going starts with our praying. Our going starts with our praying. See, we need to understand that ministry and mission without prayer is futile. Man, how often that is what happens in our own lives. I know even for myself, as I've been thinking this week and looking over the text that we're going to look at this week, it has been so challenging and so convicting to me personally as a pastor in this church to think about how often I do ministry, how often I do mission and lack praying 
significantly before I do that. I want to go, but I go without dropping to my knees first. I know I can be guilty of that in my own life, my own ministry. Maybe you find yourself in that same place, that you get excited about doing mission. You get excited about sharing the gospel with people. You get excited about what God's doing in your life and doing in and through this church. But oftentimes it's void of prayer. But what we see in Scripture over and over again is that prayer is essential to the life of the believer. It's essential to the disciple. It's essential to God's people. If we want to be who God has called us to be and we want to do what God has called us to do. In order for us to be a faithful church, we must practice faithful prayer. And so I'm really looking forward to the next three weeks. As we wrap up this series, over the next three weeks, I just I have a feeling, a sense from the Lord that God is going to do stuff to challenge us, to encourage us to be who he's called us to be so that we can be faithful as his people. And I pray that God would use this in a significant way in my life. He would use it as a, in a significant way in your life and in the life of this church. So to begin, let's start where we always need to start. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would use it as you often do, as you've given it to us to be used, to cut us to our core, as a double-edged sword, that, Lord, you would just kind of slice us open this morning in our hearts and do a work in our hearts this morning to bring about change, to bring about transformation in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church. I know for myself, Lord, I pray that even for me as I preach these words this morning, as I Open up your word as I seek to expose what your word says and share it with my brothers and sisters. I'm sharing it with with myself as well, Lord. This is so challenging for me, so convicting to me in my own life. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in us this morning, that we might be faithful prayers in order for us to be a faithful church. So would you do a work today for your glory and for our good? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read the first seven verses of this chapter in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Just to remind you of some context here, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy's a a young leader in the church who Paul has appointed to be a leader over these churches that have been planted, particularly Timothy's leading the church in Ephesus. And so, so Paul's writing this letter to him because he's challenging Timothy and encouraging Timothy to remain faithful, to be a faithful leader, and to lead the church that he's leading to be faithful. There's false teachers all around that are seeking to pull Timothy and the church away from Jesus preaching a a false gospel or a distorted gospel where something's either taken away from the gospel or added to it. And so Paul's call to Timothy and the church and us this morning is to remain faithful and to be a beacon of light in 
the dark world we find ourselves in. And so much of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is Paul's call to action of what it means for us to be a faithful church. What needs to be present for us to have faithfulness and be faithful. So what does he say? Verse 1, he says, first of all then. And we need to stop right there. He says, first. This is of first importance. It's not just first in a list of things to do. This is of primary importance. It's the highest priority of what we're called to do and be as God's people if we're going to be a faithful church. So when Paul says this, we need to pay attention to what he's saying. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul is urging God's people to pray. Now we see the word urge there, and I think in our culture, sometimes we can think urge is just a suggestion. But I I just want to urge you to consider doing something. I want to kind of press you into this direction. If you think that's a good idea, and I hope you do, it's just kind of a suggestion for life. But that's not what Paul means here when he's saying urge. When he's saying, I urge you, he's saying, I exhort you, I command you, I call you to do what I'm going to tell you to do, which in this case is to pray. And he lists out all these different types of prayers. And I don't want to get sidetracked on what it means to do all these different things. I think what Paul's trying to do here is paint a a picture of holistic prayer, of asking, of interceding, of giving thanksgiving and praise to God. But what we need to notice here is who we're to pray for. Paul doesn't say pray for yourself. It's okay to pray for yourself. That's fine. God calls us to do that. But what Paul here says is, I want you to pray as the church, as God's people, for all people. And we'll find out in a moment how significant and extensive that is. Pray for all people, Paul says, but pray even specifically, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions of leadership. Man, we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for our government officials. And for us, that might be easy for us to do. We live in a place where, generally speaking, we can kind of live life the way we want to live life. And even though we might disagree at times with who's in office in a particular political office that's held, whether locally or nationally, we could still say, well, okay, I know that I'm supposed to pray for the president. I know I'm supposed to pray for the senators and, and representatives of our country and even our local officials But we need to understand how radical it is for Paul to call Timothy and the Ephesian church to do this. Because for Timothy and the Ephesian believers that he's leading, this would mean praying for the very people that were persecuting them. At this time, Nero is the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about history, Nero hated Christians. There was a massive persecution that started soon after this where thousands upon thousands of believers were killed for their faith made a spectacle for the entertainment of the Roman population. Paul says, pray for them. Now, why does Paul call them to pray for people, all people? Why does he call them to pray for kings and leaders? He tells us in verse 2, pray for those kings and people in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That sounds good, right? It's a good thing to pray for, good motivation. I just want to live a peaceful, quiet life. So we all want, right? Just a peaceful, quiet life. No one really bothering me. When it comes to my faith, no one taking away my religious freedom or my ability to do what I want to do to worship the God, the God that I choose to worship as I would have or want to worship. Verse 3 even says, this is good. It's pleasing the sight of God our Savior to pray for all people, to pray for our leaders so that we can live peaceful and quiet 
lives godly and dignified in every way. But the question we need to ask is, why are we praying that? To what end are we praying for that? This is good, verse 3, it says, and it is pleasing the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's good and pleasing to God our Savior to pray for all people and for kings and leaders so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life in order to advance the global glory of God. To advance the global glory of God. See, Paul's not making a general call to pray for all people and leaders, though those are good things to do. He's not calling the church to pray for an easy life. Paul is calling the church to pray for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth because God desires that the nations would know him. This is not about praying for comfortable middle class living but that there might be more and more freedom and more and more opportunity to share the message of the gospel, our only hope. So this means for us, even today, that we should pray that we continue to have religious liberties and religious freedom within our own country, but not because it makes our life easier. Not because that's what the constitution of our country says, but because having religious freedom means we can share the gospel in public. It means that we can sit in a public school right now And preach Jesus. It means that we can go out in the world and share Christ with people in all different places in the sphere of public life. We can call people to repentance and faith in public. We have the freedom to do that. So we should pray that that's the case. We should pray that. And other people around the world can pray that as well who don't have that right now. So that the gospel will go forward. See, verse 4 says that God desires people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be saved. And they will be saved only by coming to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And like Paul so often does, he reminds us of what that truth is. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is one God. There is one God. There's not multiple gods. There's not various gods. There's not different household gods and national gods that we can choose from. There is one God, and he is holy, and he is majestic, and he is all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present in our lives. He's just, and he's righteous, and he's loving, and he's gracious, and he's merciful. There is one God. Paul says there's one mediator between God and men. So we have to say, well, why do we need a mediator? This holy, loving, gracious God, why why do we need a mediator, someone who would stand in between us and God to mediate that relationship? Well, it's because of our sin. Because all of us have rebelled against God. As we read early in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul paints a picture of humanity that just helps us to understand the reality of what humanity looks like apart from God. Look at Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip over to Romans chapter 3. Let's just look at this really quick. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes this and says this, What then are are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, meaning all people, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is a picture of humanity. Apart from God, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rectify the situation we find ourselves in. That because of our sin, as unholy people, we can't be in the presence of holy God. And so we are now separated from him. And there's nothing we can do on our own to bring ourselves back into a right relationship with God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But the reality for all of us, as Paul says in Romans 3, apart from God's grace in our life, is we're not even seeking God. We have no desire to live under his lordship, no desire to follow him. None of us are seeking him. So God comes to us. God comes to us. It's the greatest news of all time. And he comes to us by sending his son, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. See, maybe this morning you find yourself seeking God. You want to learn more about God. You want to maybe be in a relationship with God, but you're seeking him by trying to earn that relationship trying to earn favor with God by thinking that if I just am good enough, if I'm just a good person, then maybe God will accept me. Maybe you find yourself this morning mocking God, not believing that he's real, laughing at the idea that God would care about you and your life in this world. But the truth that's seen here and the truth that I've experienced in my own life, the truth that so many people in this room and so many people around the world have experienced is that whether we're seeking God or mocking God, God has come to us as one of us to do what none of us can do on our own, to cleanse us, to make us new. He has come to us to rescue us. Jesus has become our mediator. He stands between us, sinful humanity, and holy God, and he mediates for us. He brings that relationship together, allows us to be reconciled to God by giving his life as a ransom. He lived among us and died for us. Jesus' hands and his feet were nailed to a cross, and God poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus, not for the sin that Jesus has committed, had committed because he hadn't committed any he poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus who stood in our place, who was nailed to a cross in our place as a substitute for us. That you and I, who were never seeking after God, could be brought into a right relationship with him. See, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you have to do. But place your faith in him who died and rose again for you. See, that's the reality of the gospel Paul reminds us of this morning. For by grace you have been saved. By grace you can be saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works, not a result of your behavior, not a result of your skills or your family history or anything. Only the result, though, of our, our redeeming God. Why? So that none of us can boast. None of us can say that we did it. It's all what God has done for us. 
So if you find yourself this morning seeking God, if you find yourself this morning mocking God, would you lay all that down and just turn to Christ and place your faith in him this morning? He has come to you to rescue you, to bring you into that right relationship with God, to stand as a mediator for you. But Sojourn, here's the deal for us. Here's something we have to understand this morning as we find ourselves here in Fairfax in the world we live in at this time is that our rescuing, redeeming, restoring God desires for all people to come to a knowledge of this truth. From your two-year-old son to your next-door neighbor to the Burmese to the Punjabi to the Kyrgyz to a leader in ISIS. God desires all people come to come to the knowledge of this truth that Jesus has come to rescue us. See, prayer for all people is pleasing to God, our Savior, because our God saves. In other words, God answers these kinds of earnest prayers. And this is the the calling of Paul. In verse 7, we see Paul says, I was called to this. I was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the word that we translate there, Gentiles, just means the people, the nations. I've called to take the gospel to the nations. See, that's our calling, too. It's exactly what Jesus called his disciples to and he calls his church to, to make disciples of all people, disciples, followers of Jesus of all nations. There's urgency to this call, this commission from our Savior. And so if we are to be a faithful church here right now, if we're to be a faithful church, faithful to our Savior, then we must take up this missionary mandate from our Savior And take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. But what I want us to see today, what Paul is saying to us this morning, is that it all starts with faithful prayer to our faithful God. See, prayer is essential in the life of the believer. In prayer, we come to God to get God to experience his power and his presence and his peace in our life. So there's no secret words, there's no special methodology or way to do it. We come to him like a father. But see, we can never forget that you and I are able to come to God in prayer. We're able to bring our request before the Lord. We're able to come to God to get him because of what Christ has done for us. Because Jesus is our mediator. He has made a way for us to boldly approach the throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace in time of need. See, in prayer, we can and should make our, all of our petitions, all of our requests known to God because he cares for us like a good father. There's nothing too small in your life right now that you can bring before the, before the Lord of all the universe. He cares for you. But what we have to realize is that the goal of everything we ask of God is rooted in who God is. And is ultimately for the advancement of his glory in our own lives and the world. See, if you know Christ, God's goal in your life is to conform you to the image of his son. Romans 8 tells us that. If you know Christ this morning, then God's goal in your life is to restore his image in you. Colossians 3 tells us that. So this means that every time we come to God in prayer, every time we ask him to do something, he always answers in accordance with his own will and what will give him the most glory. See, we don't come to God in prayer so that he will build our kingdom. We come to God in prayer for the advancement of his kingdom. Jesus teaches us how to pray. 
In Matthew chapter 6, he teaches his disciples to pray, and he begins, he begins with saying, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, meaning all glory be given to your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it makes sense then that in order for the glory of God to fill the earth as the water does the seas, to shine into every dark corner and cranny of all the earth, to bring light into every hut and house and all of creation, prayer is of paramount importance for us. But see, we come from a long line of prayers as God's people. Throughout the story of the Bible, we see the people of God praying to God. And we could spend tons of time looking at this, but just to highlight a few things here. In Exodus chapter 33, we see Moses as he's leading God's people coming before the Lord and begging God for his presence to go with them. He says, I don't want to take another step, God, unless you go with us. You have to be with us, God. He's begging for God's presence. We see Jesus himself often retreating to pray. At the beginning of his ministry, he prays. He prays and asks God to give him wisdom in choosing the disciples that will be the leaders of the church. He prays at the end of his life, right before he's crucified and goes to the cross right before he's betrayed, he prays for the disciples that are in the world and the disciples that will be in the world, meaning you and me, if you're in Christ this morning. But then check out what happens after Jesus gives his missionary mandate, after he's been crucified and risen again. In Acts chapter 1, he says this, Jesus says, but you, my disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will go tell people about me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then we learn that Jesus ascends into the heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then it says this about these disciples. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And then it says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Were devoting themselves to prayer. Jesus told them, wait for the Spirit to come. Wait for the Spirit to come before you go out and share the message of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that Holy Spirit does come. It falls on these people as they're praying and asking for God to empower them to do what he's called them to do. And Peter, the apostle who's so many times put his foot in his mouth, stands up and delivers a sermon in front of thousands of people. And 3,000 people come to place their faith in Christ that day. The kingdom of God is advancing In Acts chapter 4, the people are experiencing persecution from the authorities. And so what do they do? They pray. They don't pray for their safety. They pray for boldness. Boldness to share the message of the gospel, to go out and continue to preach Christ and him crucified. And it says more and more believers were added to them. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is praying. Peter is praying, the Lord leads him to Cornelius, a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, to show Peter and the rest of the church, this isn't just for you, it's for everybody. And he shares the gospel, and Cornelius is saved. And in Acts chapter 13, in the church at Antioch, a little local church planted in the city of Antioch, they are gathered together, it says, and they're worshiping, and they're fasting, and they're praying. And as they pray, the Lord calls out Paul and Barnabas to go out and be church-planting missionaries. And that kicks off the greatest missionary movement of the early church. Paul and, Bar- Paul and Barnabas go out and they plant churches and, and the gospel goes into all of Asia and all around the Roman Empire and it all started with faithful prayer. 
Paul often asked for the churches he planted to see the mission go forward. He often asked them to pray. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says there, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. See, prayer becomes a mark of the mission of the church. And we understand that God is sovereign over all things. We see that throughout his word. But we have to also understand that our prayer affects the way God works in the world without ever compromising his divine sovereignty. What we see throughout scripture is that God, God's divine sovereignty and our prayer work together. They coincide with one another in perfect harmony to see the gospel advance and God's glory go throughout all the world. And so when it comes to mission, to seeing people hear and believe the gospel, it makes sense to us. Because here's the reality is you and I cannot make anyone believe. I can't craft a, a perfect argument that will just convince someone to trust in Christ. To turn away from sin. But what we see is that you and I are called to share the message of the gospel. But it's God who's the one who gives new hearts. God is the one who calls people from death to life, who shines the light of his glory into the lives of people. And so we can pray then that God would give people ears to hear. That God would give people eyes to see the wonders of his grace that come in through Christ and Christ alone. See, this is what Paul is driving at here in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for all people. Pray for kings and rulers. Pray that the gospel and God's glory might advance. Pray these kind of things, and God is pleased, and God calls it good because God desires to save people. Every major missionary movement, every spiritual awakening that has happened in History has been birthed out of prayer because God's people believe the truth of 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. It starts with prayer, which means that as God's people here in Fairfax, Virginia, right here, this little church here in Fairfax, we can plead for God's mercy and grace in the lives of the lost. We can plead for God's power to work in us and through us to do what God has called us to do because we can't do this on our own. We need his empowerment. We can plead for the glory of God to be seen in all the earth and for all praise to rise from the nations in all the earth. We can plead for God to send workers into the harvest. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus says this. He calls us to this. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He doesn't say put on a conference to stir up people's excitement to go on the mission. He doesn't say just set up a booth and recruit people to be missionaries. He says, no, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers in. See, our sovereign God desires to answer these prayers of his people because he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. But the question we have to ask, though, is if this is true, if we, if we see this in God's word, then why is this kind of prayer so often lacking in our lives and in the church? See, as I was studying this this week, as I was thinking about this this week, I get fired up, get excited to see and believe that God wants to answer these kinds of prayers. But then if I look at my own life, that's how often I don't pray things like this. How often I don't pray for my neighbors in the nations to come to know Jesus. 
See, I think the reason it's so lacking and oftentimes in our lives and in the church is because we don't believe that it really matters. We don't believe it really matters. See, it's important for us to understand what Paul makes clear in this text. The gospel is inclusive. What that means is it's the same for everyone. It's the same for everyone, and everyone, it's offered to everyone that they might believe. But we also see from this text that the gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive because it's only through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that someone, that anyone can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. There are 7.2 billion people in our world right now. Six billion people, if not more, don't know Christ. Three billion of those people are unreached, meaning there's no adequate witness to the gospel. There's not enough people there that know Christ sharing the gospel with those three billion people. And out of those three billion people, there's some 200 million who no one is even trying to reach with the gospel. See, that means that whole generations, whole generations of people will be born, will live, and die, and never hear the name of Jesus. And after they die, that means they'll spend all of eternity bearing the full and unrelenting righteous wrath of God. Because as Romans 1 says, all people have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. They've sought to worship the created order rather than the creator, and they're without excuse. As one pastor recently pointed out, it's more likely that a man in a remote village has heard the name of Coca-Cola than the name of Jesus. And man, that is, that is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking to think about that. But if we're honest, if I'm honest in my own heart, then my heart often isn't breaking over that reality, over that truth. Because see, I'm way too concerned and consumed with my own life my own cares, my own wants, my own desires to even think about the billions of people that are without Christ that will spend an eternity separated from God. And it's not just the man in Southeast Asia in a small remote village, it's my neighbor across the street too. See, I, I have hope, but they don't. I have peace, but they don't. I have Christ, but they don't. See, brothers and sisters, our prayer for our neighbors and the nations will only be fervent, will only be fueled when we have a deep understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what it means for those who have not yet placed their faith and trust in him. See, people must hear and understand the gospel in order to be saved. And in order for them to hear and understand, someone must go and tell them. In order for someone to go and tell them, we must be compelled by the Spirit and sent by the church. And that starts with faithful church, faithfully praying to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest that the nations might be saved. See, I believe we don't see this kind of prayer in our lives in church because most of the time our prayer is focused only on ourselves. Again, I know this is true for my own life. I spend way more time praying for my needs than my neighbors, for my necessities than the nation's. And it's okay, it's good to pray for ourselves, it's good to pray for our families, it's good to pray for our circumstances. Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, says to pray for your daily bread, pray that you'd be delivered from evil. In James chapter 5, we're called to pray for the healing of our brothers and sisters. So it's good to pray for those things, but if we're honest, what happens is that's all we ever pray for. It's the totality of the content of our prayers. They're only about us and our lives. 
So let me ask you a question. As you think about your prayer life, if God answered your prayers from this past week the way that you wanted him to, would your neighbors be saved? Would ISIS leaders be saved? Would our government officials come to know Jesus? Would whole unreached people groups be reached with the gospel? Would missionaries be sent? Would you be getting more and more opportunities to show and share the gospel with others if God answered your prayers from this past week? Sojourn, are we praying for the perishing as much as we are our personal provision? Are we crying out to the Lord of the harvest to send workers in, to send us in, that people from every tribe, every language, and every nation would hear and know the name of Jesus? See, we are in wartime, not peacetime. We're in wartime, not peacetime. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4 says. The enemy is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5 says. The world hates Christ and those who follow him, John 15 and 1 John 3 say. See, faithful prayer for the advancement of the gospel is essential in the battle we find ourselves in. This is wartime, not peacetime. John Piper, who was a pastor in Minneapolis, has written a lot of books and served the church so well over the last few years, has written about prayer as it relates to this. And I just want to share something with you that he wrote. He says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. It exists for advancing the mission, not for calling the butler to turn up the thermostat, which we don't need this morning. Not that God is opposed to practical, nitty-gritty daily prayers. He simply wants all of them to relate to the mission of your life, that his name be glorified. Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls in for the accurate location of the target of the word. It calls in to ask for the protection of air cover. It calls in to ask for firepower to blast open a way for the tanks of the word of God. It calls in the miracle of healing for the wounded soldiers. It calls in supplies for the forces. And it calls in the needed reinforcements. This is the meaning of the amazing word of the Lord. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Reinforcements come into the missionary enterprise when the churches know they're in a war. And when they bow down in their trenches with bullets flying overhead and get on their walkie-talkies and cry out for more troops. This is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comfort of the saints. This is both challenging and convicting to me because too often in my own life, prayer is exactly the opposite of what you just said. It is a domestic intercom because I care way more about my comfort than the cause of Christ. I don't remember that this is wartime and not peacetime. You see, when we understand the seriousness of the situation and the enormity of the task at hand, then and only then will it drive us to our knees in desperate prayer. Recognizing that we can't bring the gospel to the nations if God doesn't open the doors and empower us to do so. It drives us to our knees to cry out to the Lord. And what we see in this text is that our God saves. And that our God calls us to pray in order for us to have the privilege to participate in his global redeeming work. See, if we're going to be a faithful church, we must engage in faithful prayer. So what does this look like for us at Sojourn? 
just to close, I want to give us just four specific venues that I want to call us to bold, faithful prayer in. The first is just our own personal lives. It comes much more naturally for us to spend time praying about our own lives. And again, that's okay for us to do that. Jesus invites us to do that. But when it comes to praying specifically and significantly for the lost and the advancement of the gospel globally, it requires intentionality in our lives. So I want to challenge all of us to do something, something simple, but requires commitment from all of us. I want us just to take this week, just spend the next couple of days, take a three-by-five card or use your, your phone and use the notes in your phone and just write down the names of three to five people you know personally that don't know Christ and commit to praying for them by name daily. And it can be simple, just praying that God's grace would break into their life and that God would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. And along with that, write down three to five unreached people groups who don't have an adequate witness of the gospel and pray for them by name daily. Pray that God would lovingly break into their lives and that redeeming and renewing grace would come to bear on them. Pray and see what God does in your own heart, in your own life. Consider involving your family or your roommates to pray together. I know that for my own family. We don't spend a lot of time just praying for the lost, just praying for the nations. And involve other people. Brainstorm with others of how you can intentionally pray in this way. I also want to call us to prayer on Sunday mornings. Scott and Katie McKinney have started gathering together at 9.30 on Sundays to pray for this very thing. To pray for the gospel to go forward in our city, in the surrounding areas, into the very ends of the earth. So come and join them. Praying every week with your brothers and sisters for God's global glory. You can just come and show up at 9.30 and just spend some time learning and thinking and praying about what this looks like. The third venue that I want to call us to this kind of faithful prayer in is just to take our community groups and allow those to be opportunities not only to pray for the needs of one another, but also pray for the lost in our lives and around the world. Pray by name for people together as a community group. Share those people with others so that they can be praying as well. Pray for the nations together in your community group. Consider doing something like praying for a middle school or high school that's close by where you gather as a community group. Consider even going out and walking around that school and praying that the students of that school would know Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. Pray for the neighborhood you meet in as a community group and that the people that live there, pray that Jesus might be King of those streets and parks and houses that surround you. Consider as a community group adopting an unreached people group and praying for them as you gather together every week. Just one, one unreached people group. There's some 3,000 unreached people groups right now, unreached and unengaged with the gospel. Pick one and just spend time getting on your knees together and praying for them in your community group. The fourth venue I want to call us to is just one of my favorite things that we do as a church is our family prayer time. We gather together as a church on the third Wednesday of every month, which is this week, this Wednesday. And we gather together to pray together. We believe that we are called as a family to pray together. And so it's so important to us as a church, we cancel community groups during the week so that we can just focus on getting together to pray with one another. Man, I love this. I love seeing, I love hearing you, my brothers and sisters, praying before the Lord. I love hearing you pray that God would save your friends, that he would save your coworkers, that he would save your family and your neighbors and the nations. It encourages me. It, it makes me hopeful for what God can do in us and through us as a local church here in Fairfax. And so I wanted to invite you to come to that. Whether you've never been or you've come 
multiple times. I want to invite you to come to that, to pack out that room as brothers and sisters lifting up our voices in prayer to the God of all creation, asking and begging that the gospel would go forward, believing that God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. See, Sojourn, we can pray desperately and boldly because we know the end. Listen to John's words in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, John says this. He sees this vision. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, that right there starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. We know the end. We know that people from every tribe, every language, every nation will stand before the throne of God, worshiping him for all eternity. But it starts with us going and telling people. And going and telling people starts with us praying that God would allow us the privilege and opportunity to do so. Sojourn, what might God do? What might he do in our lives, in this church, in this city, in this nation, in this world, if we make faithful prayer a priority in our lives in the church? Man, will you journey with me in this? Will you step out in faith with me in this and ask God to do big things, insane things that clearly only he can do? To save your neighbor or coworker who right now seems so hardened to the gospel. Would you pray for God to do big things like see gospel preaching churches planted all over northern Virginia and all over Saudi Arabia and the jungles of Vietnam? Would you step out in faith Pray these kinds of things with me. What might God do out of the faithful prayers of a faithful church in Fairfax, Virginia? Man, let's get after it and find out. Let's find out. You know, we're going to come to the table this morning as we do every week as a church to take communion. And this morning as you come, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about what you're doing. I want you to think about what you're celebrating, that the God of all creation has made a way for you to be reconciled to him, and it cost him his son dying on the cross, bearing the weight of your sin. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. In your place, Jesus stood. God's righteous wrath was satisfied. So brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in that this morning. But as you rejoice in that, think about the people who have not yet, have not yet heard or not yet believed. And pray for them even now, that the gospel would come to them and that they would turn and trust in Christ. May our hope in the gospel drive us to our knees for those who don't yet have that hope. And if you sit here this morning and you, you know that you're not a follower of Christ, I just ask you not to come forward to take communion because we want this to be your hope also. We want this to be your hope first. That you would truly trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That you would truly be reconciled to God through what Christ has done for you. So if you don't yet know Christ, turn to him today. Ask God to save you today. Believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. That you could be forgiven and set free. If you don't yet know Christ, we, we just invite you to that this morning. God's invitation is open to you to trust in Jesus. 
It's why we're here as a church. And so if you have questions about what it means to know and follow Christ, would you please just come talk to me this morning. Come talk to any of our other leaders. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about that. And those of you that don't yet know, or those of you that do know Christ that are going to come forward this morning, you can come to the front or to the back and tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and hear the words of what Jesus has done for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just come before you just to simply pray this. Would you send us into the harvest? Lord, there are people all around us every moment of every day who don't yet know you. Maybe somebody we live with. Maybe somebody we work with. Maybe the people that live near us or around us, that live in our dorm, live in our apartment complex, live across the street, live across the fence. Lord, would you send us out? Would you give us boldness to preach the gospel, to share the hope we have in Christ with them? And God, would you give those people ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you bring revival to Fairfax? Would you call people to yourself? Would you bring spiritual awakening to Fairfax? That more and more people all around this area would come to know you. But Lord, we know that revival and spiritual awakening happen not by us just saying, yes, let's go do this. It starts by us getting on our knees and begging you to do the work that only you can do. So, Father, would you make us a faithful church by being faithful prayers who get on our knees and pray for you by your spirit to save people. And, Father, may that not just stop here locally within Fairfax, within Northern Virginia, but would you help us to be a faithful church who prays for you to do what only you can do in the nations, that the gospel might go forward in the nations, that people from every tribe, every language, every nation might hear the name of Jesus in our lifetime, in our generation. God, we believe you can do that. Help us to be faithful in praying those kinds of things because, God, we know that you desire to answer those kinds of prayers. Lord, help us to be a faithful church by spending time faithfully praying. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.